The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we're on the home stretch of the cross and crown, the gospel of Luke, which is the series that we're in right now. And we're heading everything right now, both in the book and church-wise, is pointing towards Easter, right? Like that's what everything is pointing to. And that's like an awesome time, isn't it? Like, uh, like ladies come and girls come in pretty dresses and you might see me in a tie, like, which is unusual. And it's kind of a, the people are smiling and cheerful. Like Easter is an exciting, joyful time in the life of the Christian, in the life of the church. Like, and it should be, it, it, because at the base, at the core, of the gospel, which is the story of who Jesus was and what he did, rather who Jesus is and what he did for us and what he is doing for us on our behalf. At the, st- the core of that is good news, what the gospel means. When you see the gospel of Luke, it means the good news that Luke was telling about who Jesus was and what he did. It's good news at the core, at the base of what it's about. But now we're entering, or we're in actually, the uh, season that before Easter. It's traditionally, the 40 days before Easter is called Lent. And traditionally, it's a time of, uh, even though Easter is a time of celebration and happiness, Lent is a time of, of mourning. Uh, Lent is a time of confession. Lent is a time of repentance. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is, if... If, if someone were to walk in here, and as you're, as you're wrapping up and you're grabbing some coffee or whatever you're talking in, and someone walks up to you and says, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars, cash money right now. Now, I'm pretty sure everyone in this room would be thankful or grateful to some extent. But if you are like, uh, if you have bank if you have $100 million to your name, if someone gives you a million dollars, you're gonna be thankful. It's a million dollars. But it's just one more million out of your 100 million that you have. But if you're facing eviction, if you're out of a job, if your child is sick, you're not sure how you're gonna pay for their medical bills or send your kid to college or go to college yourself or you're getting ready to get married and you don't have a dime. Like if you're in that kind of situation and somebody comes to you and offers you a million dollars, you're gonna be floored beyond words. Because the truth is good news is always good, but it's only great when you've experienced the bad, when you've tasted the bad when you know exactly why it is good. My, my kids, I, I, this is one of the things I wonder and worry about. We are anything from rich, but compared to the way I grew up, I, I live a totally different life now than how I grew up. I, I had, we had, very, I had a great, happy childhood, but we had very little. And my children, compared to me, have much. And... So like to me, whenever my mom or dad would take me down the aisle at Walmart or Kmart, the, the toy aisle, and tell you like, you can have a toy, like that was amazement 
I was filled with awe and wonder, and I would spend like an hour trying to pick out the toy, because this is the toy. Like, there's not another toy next week. There wasn't a toy last week. Like, this is the toy. This is my chance to get some of it. My kids, it's a totally different experience for them in life. Good news is good all the time. It's great to get a toy for your kid, but it's really amazing news if you realize what it's like to not have it. And so the season of Lent leading up to Easter is a time of mourning and confession and repentance that's meant to remind us of just how good the good news is. It's meant to remind us just how poor we are apart from the riches of the gospel. Just how desperate and needy we are apart from Jesus. And so if you'll stick with me today, this passage may be a little bit of a downer. It might taste a bit sour to your mouth, but it will cause the truth of Easter to be that much sweeter if you realize what state we're in apart from the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and that we have a great hope. So Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem. We covered that last week in chapter 19. He's entered the city of Jerusalem and it's the last week of his life. And he knows that. He's entered the city of Jerusalem with one purpose, to die. You may remember last week he came down uh, the side of the mountain on the back of the colt and his disciples were celebrating the triumphal entry. They were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then he comes and he, on the edge of the mountain, he can look out over the city and he looks out over the city and he weeps and he mourns because he knows that he's entering the city. They're not paying attention to it. They're missing the king that's returning to the city and it's gonna lead to their destruction and he's weeping about it. And then he enters the city and he gets to the temple and he sees that they turned his father's house, the temple, which is meant to be a house of prayer for all people into a den of thieves or a den of robbers. And he gets angry and he, he, he gets so angry that he cleans out the temple and they don't, as far as we can tell, they don't try to even come back into the temple the rest of the week while he's in there. And that's what he does. He spends his last week, the last week of his life, teaching day in and day out in the temple. So let's get the feel of the scene to really feel for what the passage that Becca read for us, really what's going on. So he's in the temple. He's entered in the triumphal entry. He's cried. He's cleaned out the temple. And now day to day, he is teaching in the temple. The authorities are livid with him. Because he's come in and he has exercised authority that he doesn't, like they don't think he possesses to clean out the temple. And there he's undermining their authority and he's undermining their power and they're really bothered with that. In fact, the beginning of this chapter, they ask him, by what authority are you doing this? And he won't even answer them. So you have him, he's teaching, there's crowds around. The city is thronged with people because it's leading up to the Passover. Thousands and thousands of people that don't live in Jerusalem are there for Passover. It's, the city is packed. The temple is packed. And he gets up day in and day out in that last week and he is teaching in the temple. And the people are amazed and fascinated and filled with wonder at his teaching. 
because this, somebody uh, was in a conversation with somebody this week, they were just, they, that stood out to them like, hey, when Jesus talks, people listen. He's teaching, and around the corner, we see little glimpses of the authorities, the scribes, the priests, the authorities of, of, the, of the temple and of Jerusalem are plotting against him already. This man is coming. He's got a big following. He's threatening their power structure. They want him gone. As they're already trying to figure out how do we get to Jesus and how do we either imprison him or outright kill him? How do we get rid of this Jesus? And they can't get to him because he's so popular and there's so many people around. And so in the middle of this, he gets up at the temple and he teaches this parable. And in this parable, he predicts his own death. And as we're going to look at the parable today, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the treachery of the tenants, that's the people who are living on the vineyard, the patience of the owner, and the wrath of the father. The treachery of the tenants, the patience of the owner, and the wrath of the father. So Jesus starts out the story in verse 9 of chapter 20, and he began to tell the people this parable. Remember, places throng with people, people plotting around the corner to try to figure out how they're going to kill the man. And he says, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, this would have been a common practice in the country of Israel, if you have a, a Wealth was equal to really land. And so if you had a, a wealthy man who owned a lot, a lot of land, he would invest in the land. And uh, if it was on the hillside, you would turn that into a vineyard because it was suitable for a vineyard. And so he has some hillside land, and it was a, a big investment because you have the hill, and you would have to come in, and you have to terrace it. So you have to, you have to build out your embankments and build terraces along so you can do the vineyard. And then he would have to invest in the, in terracing it, he would have to invest in putting a wall around it. In fact, the, as Jesus tells the story in Matthew, he goes a little bit more detail. He tells us that he built a wall around it. He built a guard tower, a watchtower there, and he put a lot of investment into building up this place. So he puts a lot of investment into this land that he owns. And then he says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lease it out to, to whoever wants to work it. And how you will pay me is you'll give me a portion of your crops. Uh, my great-grandfather and grandmother, great-grandmother, were sharecroppers out in the middle of the country in Horry County. Uh, th- this is the kind of life that they, like, this is the kind of life that they lived. They, they had a, a little cabin, and, <laughs> and times, were, times were tight. They would hear every now and then uh, the dogs would tree an animal, and they would rush out to see what animal the dog had treed, a raccoon, a possum, whatever, and they would, that would be dinner. They were out, uh, my, my great-grandmother was out with her kids, uh, uh, I forget what that was, that they were probably tobacco or something, I don't know, whatever there was, they were, they were out uh, in the fields with the kids, and a rattlesnake bit her son. My, grandmother, my great-grandmother's son would be my great-uncle. A rattlesnake bit him. It would take too long to get to town. I mean, it was like hours to get to town to find him help. And so there was an old wives' tale that what you did is when a rattlesnake bit you, that you could, 
suck the poison out of the wound. So she would, so she immediately ran over, went down, would suck the poison out, spit it out, suck the poison out, spit it out, and he lived, whether the sucking the poison out did it or he just, I don't know, or they're just tough stock, but he lived, but she lost her teeth because the poison from the rattlesnake killed all her teeth and they fell out. This is the, this is, uh, sh- that, from that, that point on, my great-grandmother hated snakes. She found another snake and she killed it with a soda bottle. This is the kind of people that I, that's the kind of stock that I come from. These were sharecroppers. It was a hard life. But if you were poor, it was a great deal because you could come in someone else's land, work the land, get, get a crop, give the owner of the crop a share of it, and you could use the rest of it. It was a, it was a good deal for you. The, the, if you didn't have the money to, to have land or to invest in the land, it was a great deal. So this, this man owns the land, and he lends or rents out the, this vineyard to some people. And he gives them some time because a vineyard takes a while to get, get going. And so when we see here that he went into another country for a long while, uh, we don't really know how long that is. I've read some commentaries. They think it could have been, you know, five years or more because, again, it takes a while for a vineyard to get going and start to reap a harvest. But it says a long while. He doesn't come in immediately and ask them for payment. He gives them time. Verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant. So what this means is when the time came is that, that he had made an agreement with the tenants. I'm going to lease this, this vineyard out to you. You're going to give me a portion of your proceeds, and it will start on year five or six or whatever. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. <laughs> That's not a great way to get on the good side of your landlord. But they don't only just say, hey, we're not gonna pay the rent. They say they beat him and they send him away without any money, without his, without his share of the crop. Now, this is a treacherous act for these tenants to do. It's not their land. They've come to an agreement with the owner of the land. The time has come for their first payment. And they don't say, hey, we don't have it or it's been a bad year. They just refuse to pay it. And not only that, they beat him and send him away back. He has a rightful claim as the owner but yet they refuse him. And I think, as I was reading this and thinking about it, I was thinking, don't we do the same thing? God has a rightful claim on our life. He owns the universe. He created it. Everything that you and I touch and experience comes from, one way or the other, the imagination and the power of God. A man may have figured out how to form metal and to make the chair that you're sitting in. Man may have figured out how to take the elements of this earth and that would surround us and somehow between that and knowledge that's acquired to make a computer or make a phone. He didn't make a, the iPhone on the eighth day. 
Man thought that up, but we, everything, the knowledge and the elements of this, the earth that we use to build everything that we have comes from him. He created us as man and woman. Your life flows from him and is owed to him every breath. He is the sovereign over all creation. What that means is all power and authority is in his hand. The Bible says he chooses the time and season that we live and where we live and how we live. All that is under his power and under his command. He created us and therefore we owe everything back to him. And yet the claims of God that he places upon our life, they rub us the wrong way. We don't like it, even though he gives us breath and he gives us the sun and he gives us the moon and the stars, he gives us food, he gives us this world. We don't like it when he puts claims upon us and he says, this is what I want you to do with your life. This is what I don't want you to do. This is how I want you to live and this is not how I want you to live. We are, the hair on the back of our neck bristles when we hear that. It's not just in my kids that whenever I say, hey, we have to take a bath tonight, and all of a sudden, it's like, it's like I ask them to, like, to set fire upon the house. Like, it's like, how can that happen? We can't do that. Like, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good request. It's not just my kids who bristle at a command. We all do it to God. And why do they rub us the wrong way? Why do the claims and commands of God rub us the wrong way? They rub us the wrong way because it means that we do not own anything. When God, in this story, as the man who plants the vineyard and owns the vineyard, he put his investment into it, and these sharecroppers get to live there and give him a portion of the proceeds and and work, they they work hard, they, they can reap the benefits, they don't own anything. They don't own... And then when God puts his claims upon us, they rub us the wrong way because it means that we don't own anything. It means that we don't own our possessions, we're only stewards. It means that we don't own our time, we're only stewards. It doesn't mean we own our, it means that we don't own ourselves or our relationships or the people around us. We're only stewards of all those things. They're placed in our hand, but only for a short amount of time. And that rubs us the wrong way when God says, hey, I'm the owner and I want you to, with, of your life and I want you to do with your life what I command you to do. We bristle to that. It rubs, us, it rubs us the wrong way because it means that we are obligated to him. Not only do we not own anything, it means that we are obligated to him. And isn't the dream of life or the actually, absolutely the, the Western American life, is the dream of life not to be obligated to anybody? I don't wanna owe anybody any money. I don't wanna owe anybody my time. I don't wanna owe anybody my attention. I want my life to be my life and no one to have any claims or say I have any obligations towards them. That's the sort of dream American life. And yet God says we are obligated not just to give him a portion, but we are obligated for everything because we don't own ourselves, we don't own our possessions, we don't own our time. It all belongs to him, it all comes from him. We don't own anything, 
we're obligated to him and we, we, they rub us the wrong way, the claims of God, because it means that when we don't line up with him, there are consequences. We don't own anything. We're obligated to him. And because of that, when we don't line up with his commands, there are consequences for that. The tenants acted treacherously to the owner of the land just the way that we do to God. But then we see the patience of the owner. Look at what happens. He sends the servant, and the servant and the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed. But then in verse 11, he sends another servant. Now, after he sent the first servant, and they didn't pay him, and not only did they not pay him, but they beat him to send a message back, we think, to the owner, he could have at that time come in and evicted them, thrown them out, and taken over. But he shows patience. And he sends another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully, it says, and sent him away empty-handed. So they treat him worse than the first guy. They beat him, treat him shamefully. So somehow there is is open reproach upon the servant, and then they send him away empty-handed. Now, at this point, the owner could have come down with the full authority of the law upon them. And yet we see in verse 12, and he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded. It's a stronger word there. So word, it's the same word back to when it talks about the story of the Good Samaritan when the man was wounded and left for dead by the, by the thieves and robbers on the road. They were wound, he was wounded and cast out. The tenants don't just refuse the claims of the owner. They insult, injure, and shame the messengers of the owner's sins. Now, as they're hearing this story, at some point, there may be some lights coming on to the Jews that are listening. Because for years and years, God had sent messengers or prophets to the people of Israel as they would, as he said, hey, because he made a covenant with the people of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. You might have seen the movie. They're coming out of Egypt. He says, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. Just follow my law. (coughs) Excuse me. Just follow my laws, and it will go well with you. But if you don't, then it will go poorly with you. And and invariably, as the people of Israel would come back for a time and follow God and then go off and do their own thing, God would send them prophets or messengers to say, do not continue, go down the road that you're going. If you continue to go down this road, this is what will happen, and it will not be good. And he continually sends the prophets and the people continually ignored them over and over and over again. And not only ignored them, but would mistreat them. Because when someone comes to you saying something you don't want to hear and they keep saying it over and over again, you would ostracize them. Then if they don't stop, you would try to do whatever you could to make them stop. They would injure the prophets. They would kill the prophets. Just get them away from us. We don't want to hear the news, the bad news. We don't want to hear the news that we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear the news about the claims of God upon our life because we want to do our own thing. And the truth is if you ignore and mistreat the messenger, you ignore and mistreat the owner or the sender. 
The Jews had for generations been mistreating and ignoring God by mistreating and ignoring his messengers. But the question is, how do we do the same thing? What messengers are there in your life where God is telling you, this is what I want you to do? Or is he telling you, this is what I don't want you to do? And you don't want to hear the message because you don't want to admit that he is the rightful king over your life or over this section of your life. God, I'll give you all of this, but just don't ask for this. And when you ask for this, I'm going to ignore you because it's too precious to me. What areas do we ignore the messengers of God? How has he sent messages to you? Maybe you've sat in a church service like this and over and over again, week after week, whether I'm preaching or whoever, it may not even be what we're teaching on, but you hear the voice of God in your heart and your mind saying, you know this is wrong. You know you need to let this go. You know you need to move on. You know what I've called you to do, and yet you're refusing to do it. Or maybe a friend or a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a parent has continually been speaking something to you and you continually ignore it. You know if we asked you under truth serum, is, is this truth, is this what God is speaking to? You would say yes, but you deny it, you harden your heart to it because you just don't want to admit that God has the claim on that area of your life. What areas of his rightful claim are you refusing? The owner could have come in at any time along the story and kicked the tenants out, but we see his great patience towards them. He continually sends more messages. You would think, like, God, you, I mean, owner, God, you should have gotten the point now. They're not going to listen but he keeps sending his messengers and he keeps sending them to you and he keeps sending them to me because he has great forbearance to us. And yet here's the scary part is that if we don't respond to God's message that he sends to us, then our hearts grow harder. The more he sends, the more he speaks to us, the more he lays claim to us, the more that we sense, God, your finger is upon this area of my life that I've determined I'm gonna go my own way, do my own thing, I'm not gonna let it go. What happens is your heart begins to grow harder and harder and harder. And you may still hear the message, but it doesn't affect you the way it did originally. You're not quite as torn up about it anymore. You find over time it doesn't affect you at all. Though he sends his messengers, your heart gets harder. And that's what's happening to the people that he's telling the story to. One of the great and tragic messages of the last week of Jesus' life is that, think about it, God himself is in the midst of his people. 
Hundreds of years before, he had chosen them to be his people. He had showed them who he was. He gave him his rules and he lost and he, his rules and his laws, and he promised that he would send the Messiah, the Savior, to come to his people. That they should be waiting and looking for that. And yet here he has come in their midst, and they're missing it. The very people who knew the word of God the best, who knew by heart the passages where God was saying, I'm going to send a savior to come and save you. The, the men who knew those passages by heart, they could quote them to you, are around the corner from Jesus as he's tearing, telling this parable, plotting how they're going to kill him. That's how heart, our, hearts, our hearts can grow when we continually refuse the claims of God upon us. And that's the great tragedy of many of us. We come to church week in and week out, community group, you read your Bible, you listen to worship music, you memorizing, like whatever it is that you're doing, and yet you continually, I continually, we continually harden our hearts as we ignore the claims of God upon our life. You could be saying, God, I give you 95% for this 5% I'm keeping for myself. And yet that, that is being, that's not giving him anything because he's the king of everything. And that will cause our hearts to harden when we continually refuse. It's like, it's like sitting at a table with a feast laid out in front of us and yet refusing to eat just to make a point. Then the parable turns darker. We see the treachery of the tenants, the patience of the owner. Then lastly, we see the, the wrath of the father. Verse 13, then, then the owner, after they have wounded and treated three of his servants, each time worse than the last, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? The, the wording there is, is full of pathos. It's that the owner is, the owner is, He's wondering what, it's not just, he's not just saying, oh, what can I, what, what will I do? He's, he's wondering what can I do to get through to these tenants? He's still being patient and forbearing with them. And then he says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, when it says that I will send my beloved son, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? When Jesus was baptized and he came about again, the father said from heaven, this is my beloved son on whom I am well pleased. Whenever he is up on the mountain of transfiguration and Peter and the, the boys see him transfigured up talking to the, the great prophets, like, and, they, and they hear a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so in this parable, Jesus says, the man says, I will send my beloved son. What that in, almost invariably says is that this is this man's only son. His most loved, his greatly loved only son. He says, I will send them to him. And then he says, perhaps they will, 
Perhaps they will respect him. That word doesn't really convey what it's saying. There's really saying, surely they will listen to him. They didn't listen to the servants, but surely if I send my son, my heir, surely they will listen to him. This will get through to them. But, verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, the interesting thing about this, this line of thinking is that it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So the owner has sent three servants, so he's serious about receiving our portion that, we do, that is due to him. Now he has sent his son, so he's really serious. So if we kill his son, surely we're going to get the vineyard free and clear. It doesn't make sense. Even if they think that the father has died and the son himself is coming to claim it himself, it doesn't make any sense to think they're going to kill the heir and actually get this property. It, it, but that what is what happens to us logically whenever we are rebelling, rebelling and resisting against God. It never makes logical sense. It's never going to end well but we convince ourselves, maybe this time it will work. So they, they say, let's kill him. And then verse 16, uh, sorry, verse 14, 15, sorry. And they threw him, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They killed the son of this owner over this vineyard. And then it says, Jesus asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, it says, I mean, it just kind of makes sense to us, right? He, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, that's understandable. It is the, it is the owner's right and yet the people who are listening to this story are shocked by the response. He will, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And it says, when they heard this, they said, surely not. The, the wording there is saying that this can't be. They are flabbergasted. <coughs> Excuse me. They are flabbergasted. They are shocked by this. And here's why. Because for years there have been prophecies like back in Psalm, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Father and against the Son. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So it says they're gonna, the, the peoples of the, of the earth, they plot against God and against Jesus. They say we're gonna do our own thing and that God looks at it and says, like, I'm not impressed. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, my holy hill. 
So there were tons of prophecies about how, like when, when the, as the nations, the pagan nations rage against God and deny him, that he's gonna come back and he's going to break them and crush them that are in, that are in rebellion against him. So they expect that. They expect to hear that the pagan nations that don't worship God are gonna be crushed under the power of God at some point. But what shocks them in this story is that they figure out that he's talking to them. The Jews who have continually refused the messengers of God, the prophets of God, the servants of God that have come and told them, laid claim upon their life, and they've refused him, that he's gonna take the vineyard away from them and give it to others, outsiders. Here's, here's what's not shocking about it is that, that the bad people are going to be in trouble. Those that openly reject and rebel against God, they're on the wrong side of history. It goes bad. The, the, the book tells us it goes bad for those who reject God. And if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, I pray this would be the morning that you would seek mercy from this merciful owner, this merciful God. But it's not just the bad who are in trouble. The people are shocked through the story because the good people, the quote unquote good people are also in trouble because we can turn our goodness into an especially hideous evil. He's he's speaking to the Jews who have turned their religion to fuel their own self-reliance, to fuel their own self-righteousness, to fuel their own self-worth, and to fuel their own self-importance. But we do the same thing. We turn our religion, we turn doing the right thing into a way to, so that we can be self-reliant, so that way that we can have our self-righteousness, we can look down on those who are the bad people and we feel good about ourselves because we're the good people and doing the right things. We fill up our self-worth about ourselves because we look at our lives and we're pleased with how good we are comparative to other people. We use our religion to make us self-important like the scribes and Pharisees and the priests that he's speaking to. They fueled their self-importance by the way that they kept God's law, what they thought perfectly, and they used that to fuel their own sense of power. And we do the same thing. But look at the, well, if you hear the, the ending of Psalm, chapter, of Psalm 2. Verse 9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's explaining why Jesus gets to the end when they are shot. They said, surely not. They're gonna give the, he's gonna give the vineyard away to others. He says, well, what does this mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone 
will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What it's saying is that your relationship to Jesus will make you or break you, and there can be no neutral ground. Your relationship to Jesus will make you or break you. Either you will be crushed in your rebellion against Jesus or Jesus will be crushed for your rebellion. So there is no middle ground. Either we will be crushed by our, in our rebellion against Jesus or he will be crushed for us. question this morning is, where are you in your relationship to Jesus? Are you in alignment? Is your life in alignment with the cornerstone or are you out of alignment? Are you listening? Are you listening to the commands of Jesus and his claims upon your life? And are you submitting? Am I submitting to that? If we continue to be stiff-necked against him and don't bow our knee, we will be crushed. But if we bow our knee to him and accept that death of the son on our behalf, then he is crushed for us. Our relationship to Jesus will make us or break us there could be no neutral ground. So we're weeks away from Easter. But it doesn't mean that that can't, we can't cheat ahead and know what happens. That Jesus who stood before them and gave this parable to the people who were plotting to kill him and, or would be calling for his death in a few days, he's telling the story knowing that he's willingly going to the cross to be crushed for them, for their hard hearts, for your and my hard heart. And that is the antidote for our hard hearts. When we see the love and the sacrifice of the son who was crushed for us, it causes love to erupt in our hearts. And then we would submit to him, not with a grudging submission, but with a joyful submission that's based out of love and gratefulness for all that he's done for us. I'm gonna pray for us this morning, and this, I know it's heavy this morning. I'm gonna pray for us, and my prayer is that as we sing together and as we prepare our hearts to come partake of communion together, that as we take of the body and the blood of Jesus, that that would cause us to have an appreciation for how just how great the good news is that he was crushed on our behalf because we are people of hard hearts and he came for us. And as we see that, it causes our hearts to soften. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would soften my heart, soften our hearts this morning.
God, in the midst of the, the heavy truth that, that our lives are not our own, that you have a claim on every part of our lives, on every part of our being, that nothing is our own, that even as believers, when we hear your claims, that oftentimes that we, we, want to, we, we want to reject them, we want to resist them, Father, I pray that as we remember those claims upon our heart and we see that you were crushed so that we wouldn't be, that it would cause a loving gratefulness to erupt in our hearts, to empower us to turn away from everything but you and to follow you wholly. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.